0: Welcome back to the Big Amateurism monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And you can also check out my blog at cagerredux.com. That's c a g e r r e d u x dot. All right, we're doing some follow-up episodes on my analysis of the NCAA's infractions and enforcement case against North Carolina State. And in the last episode, I talked about the importance of climate and culture and how the climate and culture of the NCAA's enforcement staff, they're in-house people, the national office employees and the committee on infractions how they think, how they see the world, and how that climate and culture has evolved really over 70 years since the beginning of the Walter Byers era, when the NCAA gained meaningful enforcement powers and authorities and jurisdiction. And today, I want to talk about this infractions and enforcement process in a much different context. And this is a tricky terrain because I'm going to talk about race. Whenever we talk about race in America, people have a tendency to just put up their hand and say they don't want to talk about it or the institutional stakeholders who want to just issue the press release that says that they support civil rights and social justice and diversity and inclusion and all those things. But when uh, a tough issue comes up, they do the synchronized desk dive. And the NCAA, the in-system stakeholders and all of these external review organizations and advocacy groups who are really reading from the same page as the NCAA go to extraordinary lengths to avoid talking about the reality of the black labor market in big time college sports, the extent to which the entire business model is built upon it and how that money is taken and then redistributed to beneficiaries and system stakeholder beneficiaries who were overwhelmingly white and comparatively well off. So I want to talk about a few things, historical factors, and then some broad brush themes to get to who the people actually are who have been embroiled in the NCAA's war against Black revenue-producing basketball players in the enforcement and infractions process. It is just undeniable that the focus of this enforcement and infractions process lands at the individual level on young black men. You don't hear a suggestion of that issue, that concern, that inequity, that civil rights issue that social justice issue in any of the discussion about these cases, not from the NCAA executives and sure as heck not from Carol Cartwright in her referral letter or in any of the work product of the NCAA. They are living in a world of denial and it's purposeful denial. So let's just do a little reality check here. And the first part of that reality check is that the NCAA... Because of this Board of Regents decision in which powerful football interests sued the NCAA under antitrust laws, the very antitrust laws that the NCAA and the Power Five have been begging Congress and federal courts to be immunized from. They're okay with using the antitrust laws when they are pursuing their institutional business interests, but they sure as hell don't want athletes coming in and using those same laws to drag the NCAA and Power Five into the 21st century. But because of that Board of Regents decision, the NCAA and the NCAA national office, more importantly, doesn't get a penny of football revenue. So the NCAA's sole source of revenue and the NCAA National Office's sole source of revenue is the Division One Men's Basketball Tournament, also known as March Madness. The NCAA has this long-term contract for March Madness with CBS and Turner, which started with CBS in 1988. And then in 1994, it was a Long-term escalating fee contract, which means that every year the amount went up and up and up. And then Turner joined on around 2010. And the contracts are now worth about a billion dollars a year and extend into 2032. That is permanent bureaucratic job security for the NCAA national office and they take that money and they spread it around to enough downstream beneficiaries to keep them happy and to keep them from complaining And in this new constitutional committee where Bob Gates is aligning authorities and responsibilities, there is one component of looking at the business model that is untouchable. Bob Gates has said this. The gender equity report, the Kaplan firm that drafted that report, they said this, even though they were criticizing the length of that contract and the fact that it held women's basketball hostage to men's basketball interests. But they said, no, that contract has to stay in place. And then Bob Gates says that. The Knight Commission says that. Everybody agrees, apparently, that that contract is a great thing. Why? Because the underlying reality, the truth of the message that's being pumped by the NCAA National Office through all of these mouthpieces is that we are going to preserve our bureaucratic state at all costs. This is about the survival of the NCAA bureaucratic state. That's it. It's about Mark Emmert's $3 million salary and all these ridiculous, obscene, pornographic salaries at the executive staff level that simply don't pass the blush test in the nonprofit world. The fact that nobody's willing to say, wait a minute, and there are obvious problems with the length of this contract and its consequences. And one of them, beyond suppressing the value of women's basketball, it has the effect of basically providing permanent job security for a corrupt national bureaucracy that has flown the private NCAA jets into the side of the mountain. Nobody's talking honestly about that. The reason That is being put forth by Bob Gates, and I think this is where the Knight Commission is coming from, is that we absolutely need that money to run through the NCAA because that money then is distributed to Divisions 2 and Divisions 3 and to downstream beneficiary, and it funds all of the national championships in every sport except football, because football owns its own championship. And the CFP has absolutely nothing to do with the NCAA. So you have... This narrative that's developing now, and it's been in place for a long time, that it is absolutely essential that the downstream beneficiaries' interests be protected first, and the only way to do that is to preserve the status quo with the March Madness money, therefore preserving the status quo with the NCAA national office. And I'm going to talk a a lot more about that dynamic when we get to analyzing this constitutional committee and how it has framed the issues. But in preserving that status quo, you're not changing anything. Nothing's going to change so long as those people have permanent job security, and they're going to stay in their uh, cush jobs with their cush salaries and keep doing the same thing that the NCAA has been doing for 70 years. Nothing's going to change, which makes a mockery of the existence of this constitutional committee. And based on what I'm seeing that now that's coming out of that committee, I think that is pretty much where it's headed. This is just another NCAA smokescreen to try to remain relevant in the college sports discussion. But I want to talk a little bit more specifically about how this money is actually spent because the NCAA has propagandized this lie that 90 to 95 cents on the dollar of all this March Madness revenue that comes in, it's about a billion dollars a year and it's going to remain that way into 2032. But at a billion dollars a year, the NCAA is saying that 90 to 95% goes back to the member institutions and theoretically then is going back to some purpose that's consistent with the NCAA's claim of nonprofit status as an education nonprofit. That has been challenged because of the obvious professional profit-seeking sports of football and men's basketball. But again, Miles Brand tried to reconcile that by saying, that's just what universities do. And we're just going to take that money and then we're going to shift it downstream to participation opportunities. (laughs) The participation opportunity beneficiaries are white and comparatively well off. And I guess before I I get to how the money is actually spent, I just want to point something else out. And I've addressed this in other episodes. And I did a blog post on this and it was titled, Who Pays the NCAA's Bills? And it was actually, one of my earliest posts. And I went through and talked about this transition for the NCAA from football money when they had an absolute monopoly over televised football from 1951 to 1981, just prior to the Board of Regents' decision. And then how the NCAA transitioned into maximizing the value of March Madness. Because that's the only meal ticket that it had left after Big Time Football won their financial freedom and Board of Regents. And they took all their money and essentially separated it out from the NCAA, even though the Big Time Football product exists under the NCAA umbrella and gets all the benefits of the administrative state, including infractions and enforcement. Because every penny of infractions and enforcement is paid by the labor of elite division one men's basketball players, not elite division one men's football players. So these athletes are funding the very process that's being used to ruin their lives and their careers. They are supplying the weapons for the opposing army. And there were some things that occurred historically that predated the transition to almost an exclusive emphasis on March Madness money and just getting out of the football marketplace altogether. And I, I talk about those at length in this blog post. There were a couple actually that involved NC State that are interesting. So when NC State in 1974 won the national championship, their semifinal game was against UCLA and UCLA was coming off of seven consecutive national championships. They had this dominant run that has never been repeated. And John Wooden, their legendary coach, was a god in college basketball. And the conventional thinking was that UCLA simply couldn't be beaten. And NC State had one of the best teams in the country. Their overtime victory over UCLA in 1974 in the semifinal game was one of the most consequential NCAA tournament games in history because it really was the beginning of the decline of the UCLA dynasty. And I think that the dominance that UCLA had really hampered the overall value of the basketball marketplace. And ironically, though, after UCLA lost to NC State in 74, they came back the next year and won the national championship. But after that, they started to decline and wouldn't retire. This was back when you had to win your conference tournament or however the conference determined its champion, only the champion could go. And in the ACC championship game in 1974, NC State beat a Maryland team that many thought was the best team in the country. It was just an incredible team, and not having them in the tournament was really a crime against basketball. They were just a phenomenal team, and it was an overtime game. A lot of people still consider that to be one of the best games ever played in the ACC. But as a consequence of Maryland's exclusion from the 74 NCAA tournament, the NCAA, the following year, for the first time ever started at large bids so you didn't have to win your conference tournament you could be selected by the ncaa tournament selection committee and so that was in 1974 and then you had the profile of the game being really jacked up in 1979 when michigan state and indiana state met in the national championship magic versus bird which was was one of the most popular sporting events of all time and highest rated And it really raised the profile of men's basketball. And then it was also the year that ESPN launched. And then you had the rise of the cable TV technology. And then you had Board of Regents. And then the template was set to really take advantage of this momentum in college basketball. And then you saw rules changes in the 1980s that made the game more entertaining. So you see two things happening as the NCAA is losing control of its football empire and then is having to pivot to basketball. And you see the aggressive expansion of the NCAA tournament and really in just a 10-year period, it doubled in size and ultimately became more of an invitational tournament than a qualifying tournament because more teams were put into the tournament through The at large invitation process than by qualifying by winning their conference championship. In the earliest iterations of the tournament, you had, let's see, 25 teams in 74. In 1975, you had 32. And then by 2011, you had 68. And it was just an incredible expansion. And there were talks in 2010 of trying to take the tournament to 96 teams. And the purpose for that why do you do that? Because you get two things. You get more advertising revenue. You get more games. And what was once a one-week tournament is now a month-long extravaganza, starting with ESPN's Champ Week or whatever they're calling it now. So you have this lead into the tournament. Then you have a three-week tournament, and the NCAA just markets to ever live in hell out of that, and they want to sell as much advertising as they can. And the more games they have, the more advertising they can sell. It is just a basketball orgy, and America can't get enough of it. And then the other thing that happened were these rules changes in the mid-80s that were specifically designed to enhance the entertainment value of the game. So the instantly introduced a three-point shot and a shot clock, which are important components of the NBA model. And it is designed to make the game entertaining. It's so funny, you know, when those changes were announced, and let's see, that was in the early 80s, And when I was at Duke, I think it was my junior year, 82, 83, the ACC had an experimental year where in conference, we used a three-point line that was inside the top of the key. It was a chip shot and the shot clock. And I would say to mixed results. But by, I think, 85, 86, the NCAA went with a shot clock and a three-point line and the shot clock has steadily decreased in time to speed up the game. And then you had the three-point line being extended and it now is at the FIBA, the international three-point line. But those two changes were transformative in the game. And now in 2021, I think most basketball fans couldn't imagine a college basketball game without a shot clock or a three-point line. So we just adjust to a new normal, and then the new normal becomes the thing that we can't live without and can't imagine living without. So you then have this product that has enormous market value. The NCAA locks it in with these long-term contracts with CBS and Turner, and you have these black athletes in the middle of this whose contributions to that crucial component of the business model are outright denied by the NCAA. And they really have no power. in fact, I argue that college basketball, elite College basketball, the value in the product that gives this March Madness tournament its billion-dollar-a-year value, have been silenced by big-time football's takeover of the college sports marketplace and of governance at the NCAA and of controlling decision-making at the Power Five level, at the conference level. And big-time men's basketball is kind of being held hostage to those interests, and that is part of what I explained in my Prisoner's Dilemma episodes And this really interesting Detente that has evolved since the nineteen seventies between big time powerful football interests and the NCAA. And an important part of that détente is having this March Madness piece in place for the NCAA, so long as the NCAA was doing the Power Fives bidding, the big-time football interest bidding, I should say, and enforcing this overall cap on the cost of labor, which is the cost of an athletic scholarship, and then managing the talent acquisition market and this crazed fight to get a competitive advantage or avoid losing a competitive advantage. So that's really the nature of the relationship. And there's like this triangle, the NCAA national office, powerful football, and then men's basketball. But I think this kind of consensus that the March Madness contract can't be touched, it's a sacred cow, is really interesting now. And the long-term contract, I think, is serving its purpose for the NCAA national office. And that is to keep the Mark Emmerts of the world employed in perpetuity and to maintain their ridiculous salaries that probably don't pass muster under nonprofit rules. Nonprofit executives are not supposed to get, quote unquote, excessive salaries. And there's no question that the salary structure at the NCAA national office is excessive. It's indefensible. But all of that revenue generated by the March Madness contract, makes a lot of downstream beneficiaries happy. It is a regressive transfer of wealth from comparatively less well-off African-American men to comparatively more well-off white interests, white men and white women, and white institutional stakeholders. And of that billion dollars, only approximately half of that money goes back to the Division I interest through a variety of meaningless categories of funds and the student opportunity fund and the basketball fund and all this stuff The schools can spend that money however they want to the NCAA has no enforcement jurisdiction to tell the schools how they can spend that money they have some limited reporting requirements for a couple of funds but for the most part they have absolutely nothing to do with how schools spend that money but only half goes back so where does the other half go well let's talk about that for just a second. And I have in front of me a document titled, Where Does the Money Go? And it comes from the NCAA website. And again, these categories are meaningless in terms of these funds that they've set up to send back to Division One because they're very nebulous and we really don't know how that money is spent. But there are some categories that help inform where the money is sent outside of Division One, and the money that goes to fund the corrupt NCAA bureaucratic state. Before I give these numbers from the NCAA side, I'll just say this too. When I go back and look at the amount of money that's identified for Division One championships, and this would be every Division One sport from March Madness to tennis golf, rowing, water polo, field hockey, cross country, fencing, you name it, all these non-revenue sports down to Division one. And that's independent of the payments to divisions two and three and I'll get to that in a second. But this document shows 154 million dollars going just to Division one championships. And this is just the championship. It's nothing to do with the regular season. But I went back and looked at my Form 990s, and in the 2017 tax year, the NCAA spent only $94 million, according to its Form 990, on Division One championships. So that's an increase of 50% in what could not be more than three years. And I can't find online through the IRS service or ProPublica the most recent tax filings. And of course, we had the COVID year. If this was from the 2019 tax year, the last kind of regular year that the NCAA had, that is less than a two-year period. You've got a 50% increase in the cost of Division One championships. So again, some of these numbers are just so vague and so inconsistent with what's contained in the Form 990s that, again, this is just begs the question of where this money's going. And there ought to be an investigation. <laughs> where are the transparency police when you really need them? Mark Emmert's out there yammering on about transparency we need transparency bob gates is doing the same thing and all these ncaa minions when they're talking about name image and likeness bad actors they want transparency they want to do a documentary cavity search of anybody that a athlete deals with in any of these name image and likeness transactions and I say, why don't we just have that same level of curiosity and transparency in NCAA national office finances? So let's look at these numbers. Okay, so remember, we're talking about a billion dollars here. And all that money comes from either television revenue from March Madness or ticket sales from March Madness. That's it. Let's look first at how much goes into the NCAA National Office black hole. And you have really four categories of expenses. They call them membership support services, which is basically committees and conferences and all these get-togethers that seem to be so important to the NCAA bureaucracy. Then you have educational programs, and most of those programs are actually for employees, university employees in the athletics department and trying to promote whatever initiatives to foster professional development. Those are not for the athletes. Then we have $45 million in general and administrative expenses. Again, very vaguely couched. Then On the Form 990s, we have the salaries, and then we have the Schedule J that uh, lists the salaries for the key and highly compensated employees. And then we have another black hole category of nearly $60 million titled Other Association-Wide Expenses. So all those categories combined are $130 million, and every penny of those expenses comes from March Madness Money and Elite Revenue Producing African American men in the sport of basketball. And then when we go to these block grants to Division Two and Division Three, we're seeing just outright welfare. According to this document, the last distribution to Division Two was fifty-three million dollars. And the way that they describe that is that it funds championships, grants, and other initiatives for Division II college athletes. So that includes the championships, but that's more the nature of a block grant. And then for Division III, that number is $35 million for the same purpose, and that includes championships. So when you combine the amount of money that is spent on championships and block grants, including the Division I championships and all these non-revenue sports... And then the, these two block grants: to one to Division Two, one to Division Three. That totals two hundred and forty-one million dollars. Two hundred and forty-one million dollars. And then you add the one hundred and thirty million of the NCAA national office black hole expenses, and you're bumping up on four hundred million dollars from elite Division One African American male basketball players to rich white national office executives and employees and to predominantly white downstream division 1 beneficiaries division 2 beneficiaries and division 3 beneficiaries and it's also important to note that of the 90 championships that the NCAA sponsors across the three divisions association wide paid for by the labor of elite black male basketball players of the 90 championships 85 lose money there's not a single money maker in the Division Two or Division Three products, none. And in Division One, there are four other products besides men's basketball that make money, but it's nominal money. And remember that the NCAA doesn't get a penny of big-time football money. All that CFP money, all that ball money, it goes straight to the Power Five conferences, and then they keep it to themselves. And one final thing before we go on to the racial demographic of these athletes. In all of those categories of money, And those expenditures that I just identified, did you notice an omission? There is not a single line item anywhere in the NCAA Form 990 or their consolidated financial statements or in any of their propaganda on their website that is dedicated to their infractions and enforcement process. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more towards the end of the episode. And then there's another omission in the numbers that the NCAA presents on its website that is so, so important. In fact, I'm going to do an entirely separate episode on this, and I've talked about it in connection with uh, some of the antitrust cases, and that is the NCAA's legal fees and the amounts that they spend on settlements and all the ways that they protect their interests in court mostly federal court and those numbers are big they're very very big Every penny of the legal fees, expenses, settlements that the NCAA incurs, not just in defending suits that are filed against it, but in pursuing actions against other people or using suits filed by athletes as a vehicle to get issues into the federal courts that they think will be beneficial to them, like the Austin case. The NCAA appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they pressed that issue because they thought they were going to get antitrust immunity from the United States Supreme Court. But the NCAA has spent hundreds of millions of dollars to defend its interests and pursue its interests in federal court. Every penny of that is paid by revenue generated from March Madness. And again, it's an area where these athletes are paying for the weapons that are being used against them. And the same is true now with the NCAA's lobbying campaign. And they have a very sophisticated lobbying campaign. They affiliated themselves with one of Washington's high-powered lobbying firms, Brownstein-Hyatt. That occurred in 2014. I talked about that in my pay-for-play episodes. In that crucial year of 2014, all those lobbying fees, all of the money that the NCAA is spending to twist arms behind the scenes in Congress is being paid for by elite African-American Division One men's basketball players. So now I want to talk a little bit about the true demographic of big-time men's basketball. And the NCAA has statistics. It has a statistical database that gives some demographic material by division, by sport, by race, by sex. But there's no telling how those numbers are crunched. And one of them is that African-American athletes comprise about 57% of Division One men's basketball players. And that is, I think, grossly misleading because, well, let me just walk through the numbers here. And I don't take anything the NCAA out there as legitimate. But that number keeps popping up. You see it in newspaper articles. You see it in congressional testimony. That number is pretty well baked in. So I want to talk about the dominance of black male basketball players in high-level basketball. But I want to think about it in terms of a pipeline that runs from high school to the NBA. When I get to college, we're going to focus really just on the Power Five, and I'm going to include the Big East. so you have six conferences. And the vast majority of elite talent runs through those conferences and those schools. That Reality gets obscured by the propaganda surrounding men's college basketball, and particularly the March Madness tournament about parody and about these underdog narratives. Those are the exceptions, and they have market value to the NCAA, and they get covered like the moon landing when you have a high-profile upset. But those are the exception, not the rule. And when you look at the true numbers, you see how dominant those six conferences are in attracting the most elite talent in men's basketball and that talent is overwhelmingly black so let's start by taking a stab at what elite means what exactly is elite and i'm going to use the commission on college basketball's characterization of elite because i think the ncaa would be a stopped to deny it so they say There's no single definition of elite. There's a small group of players each year considered to have the potential to jump from high school to the NBA, and that's uh, single digits. So we're talking about a very small number of true one-and-done players. Then a larger group of 25 to 30 players heavily recruited by prominent Division I programs. And then still a larger pool playing in the elite apparel company circuits. And they say that's perhaps about 800 spread over four recruiting classes. All told, Division I schools recruit roughly 1,100 basketball players each year. Each of these categories may be referred to as elite. So the other thing that's implicit in that, and again, in that discussion, the commission doesn't say that almost all of those players are African-American. There's no acknowledgement that almost all of those elite players are African-American. But this definition of elite shines a light on another reality, and that is that basketball is a unique sport. And it's much different from football because a single player can change a team's basketball fortunes overnight. So you have this intense recruiting attention on this very small pool of people and these elite players who got caught up in these basketball scandals, they are the subjects of some of the most intense employment labor recruiting that occurs in any sector in America because their value is so high and the results, the return on investment is immediate. As soon as they enroll at that school, as soon as they put on that basketball uniform, as soon as they take the court, they are adding immediate value to the product. And that completely undermines NCAA's suggestion that that value doesn't exist but for the university. So let's just take a real quick look at the racial composition of the top high school players. There are all kinds of ranking services. They're subjective. There's a lot of subjectivity built into this, but given the structure of the grassroots basketball market and the national nature of it, you have the best players able to compete against each other. You can compare apples to apples today in that structure in a way that you couldn't do when I was playing in the 1980s because you didn't have that infrastructure and coaches had to go out to some remote place in another part of the country to look at a player and they're trying to imagine what that player would look like on the floor with players of comparable size and ability and skill. And it was really an imprecise market. Today, I think that these rankings have some legitimacy because these kids are playing with and against each other, really from the time they're 10, 12 years old. So they get a lot of exposure. But back when I did that blog post on the value of these athletes to the business model, I pulled statistics from the 2017-2018 year, basketball year. And I looked at the racial composition of the top 250 players coming out of high school. And I looked at the rankings from a couple of these big websites that specialize in that, and the results were fairly consistent. But of those top 250 seniors coming out in the 2018 class, of the top 50 recruits, 47 or 94% were Black. Of the top 100 recruits, 83% were black. Of the top 200 recruits, 80% were black. And of the top 250 recruits, 78% were black. Black And when you go back to the Commission on College Basketball's definition of elite, you've basically captured the top of the market there. So all of this intense attention, all the recruiting insanity that swirls around this competition to get this elite talent is a battle for black talent. And at the end of every high school basketball season, there is an all-star game called the McDonald's All-American All-Star Game. A lot of people are familiar with it. But it's a real honor to be chosen for that game. There's an East and West roster. Only 12 players per roster are invited. And it really is a nice thing to have on your resume. And I looked at the years 2018 and 2019. And of the 24 roster spots that were available for both teams in 2018, every single player was black. In 2019, of those 24 combined roster spots, 20. Two of 24 roster spots went to black athletes. So that is of that 48 total in two years, 46 are African-American, 46. This isn't newsflash material. People who are familiar with the basketball market and the pipeline from high school to college to the NBA know these numbers. They know these realities. The NCAA knows this. The Commission on College Basketball knew this. The Knight Commission knows this. The NCAA infractions and, and enforcement staff know this. Now, let's move on to college. I discussed earlier that you know this 57% statistic is really unreliable. And so what I did is I went back for three Power 5 conferences, the ACC, the SEC, and the Big Ten, for the 2018 season. And I went through some of these numbers and I just wanted to put up a bit of a broader point on this. There are 351 Division 1 schools, and I'm only talking about Division 1 here because again, t- Divisions 2 II and 3 are irrelevant to any discussion about the business of big-time college sports. They just don't exist for all intents and purposes except to be used as amateurism camouflage and to receive money from the money-making products in Division 1. But they're not players. I'm so only talking about Division 1. There are 351 Division 1 men's basketball teams. Each school is permitted up to 13 scholarship players. So each year there are a maximum number of total scholarships across division 1 of 4563. There are approximately 5200 total division 1 players which means that a substantial percentage of the players in division 1 are non-scholarship players. But looking at division 1 wide numbers and drawing any meaningful conclusions is I think a bit tricky because of the disproportionate representation of the elite players in the Power Five and the Big East. Go to those elite players in the class of 2018, and we look at where they went to school. You see that almost all of the top players went to a Power Five school. So in that class of the top 50 recruits, which included Zion Williamson, for example, 47 of those 50 committed to Power 5 or Big East schools. Of the top 100 players in that class, 90% chose a Power 5 or Big East school. Of the top 250 players, over 80% went to play for Power 5 or Big East schools. And then when you go and look historically in the modern tournament, the formulation and format of the modern tournament, you look at the final four teams, year in and year out. And they are almost exclusively Power Five Big East teams. And the number of Cinderella teams that make it to the Final Four is very small. And none of those true Cinderella teams has ever won a national. Championship. So now I want to take a deeper dive into the true demographics of African-American players because the division-wide numbers, again, are really misleading. So to get a more accurate picture of the true contributions of African-American elite basketball players, I looked at all of the rosters for three conferences, the ACC, SEC, Big Ten, and then crutched some numbers. This is, again, for the 2017-2018 season. I went to each website for each team, and the presentation's pretty much the same. They have the team rosters, and they present in a grid format, so you see the picture of the player. You can, for the most part, determine race. There were some calls I couldn't make with any certainty, so I just omitted them. So in the Atlantic Coast Conference, there were 223 total players. 160 of those players were African American, or 72%. In the SEC, the Southeastern Conference, there were 217 total players rostered, 163 are African-American or 75%. In the Big Ten, there were 214 total players, 130 of those or 61% were black. And for those three conferences combined, there were a total of 654 players, 453 of those players were African-American or 69% but that doesn't tell the whole story. Those numbers, I think, are meaningful, but they don't tell the whole story because they don't distinguish between the players who actually do the heavy lifting on a team and the players who have virtually zero chance of contributing on a game-in, game-out basis to the success or failure of a team. And as a former Walk on turned scholarship player. I can speak to that reality. I didn't get a whole lot of playing time, and my presence on the roster had virtually zero impact on whether the Duke teams I played on won. Or lost. I made some contributions in practice and we can talk about all this intangible stuff, but when the rubber met the road and it came down to who was going to be on the floor and who was going to have the heaviest hand in deciding whether our team won or lost, I wasn't even on the radar screen. So reality is that there are distinctions among players on rosters. That's just the way the world works. That's just the way life works. And it's no different in big time. College sports. And so, what I did was, I went back and looked at end of season statistics. There's a statistics now are much more sophisticated than when I played. And there are all kinds of algorithms that coaches and scouts and teams use to crunch data and try to analyze their own performance or prepare a scouting report for an opponent and all that kind of stuff. So, those are wonderful tools. But really, there's one statistic that I think tells the truest story about what players are the most valuable to a given team and that is playing time so there are all these stats out there, and then there are coaches across Division One college basketball that run wildly different types of systems in which they are recruiting different types of players for different purposes. But regardless of the system that a coach runs or his individual pet peeves or preferences, there's one thing that remains constant, and that is playing time. And no coach is going to put a player on the floor who isn't going to increase the likelihood that player contributes to the success of the team and the likelihood that the team will win a particular game. And if you find me a coach who says that everybody's on equal footing and everybody uh, is getting equal playing time, I'll find you a coach who is really not a coach. He's a former coach. The best coaches find the best players they can find. They don't give a damn what color they are. They don't care where they come from. They want the best players that they can find. And they put the best players that they bring into their talent pool on the floor for as long as they possibly can. And there are all kinds of considerations that go into playing time. But in the aggregate, across a regular season, the players who spend the most time on the court are the players who have the highest value to that roster, to that team, and to that coach. That is an unassailable reality. So what I did is I went back to the stat sheets and at the end of every season, and I think they base this on a 32-game regular season, There is a uniform stat box that provides us all kinds of statistics. And you can look at the points and rebounds and all that, but that's really not an accurate marker because of the different systems that coaches run and the different priorities that they have. But playing time is the great equalizer. And in the game of basketball, five players per team are on the court at any given time. The game is 40 minutes long. So each team has 200 minutes per game to allocate across the roster. So that's five players times 40 minutes, so 200 minutes. And when you look at these end-of-season statistics across 32 games and you look at the minutes, you start to see some patterns emerge. And most coaches wind up settling on a rotation of players and they allocate those 200 minutes a game across maybe seven, eight, sometimes nine or 10 players. But a reliable subset of the total roster and the rest of the guys are irrelevant in terms of playing time. But the coach uses different players in different situations, but over the course of a season you get a sense of who the go-to players are. And they're usually five or six players that carry the laboring or across the, the 200 minutes in a game and the 32 games in a season. And so I drew a line at 20 minutes per game. And that's kind of consistent with where these numbers shook out at the end of the season. And a player who averaged 20 or more minutes per game, I viewed as a high-value, high-productivity player. And I focus just on those. And when you look only at the high-value, high-productivity players, the statistics are eye-popping. In the ACC, for example, in that 2017-2018 uh, year, there were 85 players conference-wide who met that 20-plus-minute standard, about 5.6 per team. And of that pool of players, 84% were black. In that SEC, 79 players met that standard, also approximately 5.6 per team. Of that pool, 95% were black. In the Big Ten, 85 players met that threshold, approximately 6 per team. Of that pool, 78% were black. And when you combine the numbers for all three conferences, there were 249 players who met that standard. And of that pool, 86% were black. That is a far different. Statistical picture than what you get from using these watered down numbers in the NCAA database that claim that 57% of Division I basketball players are African American, leading you to believe that the value of African American basketball players is less than what it really is. But when you look at who actually carries the laboring ore, the laboring ore, it is African-American athletes, and it is by shockingly high percentage. And that's the truth of the contribution of these unique and extraordinarily talented athletes. These are among the best players in their age group in the world. They are an elite force of highly valuable athletes that bring immediate and dramatic market value to the schools they play for and the conferences that they play in and the organization that governs them, the NCAA. Zion Williamson is a perfect example. He carried college basketball his freshman year. and He wasn't just a Duke product. He was an ACC product. He was an NCAA product. And all three of those products marketed to ever live in hell out of zion williamson leading into the tournament there were articles in mainstream media papers all over the country at the time i was reading both the new york times and the wall street journal and the wall street journal leading up to the tournament williamson's freshman year that was the 2018-2019 season they Covered Zion Williamson like he was the only player in college basketball, and there was article after article, pictures everywhere on the ESPN website. You couldn't click on an article in college basketball without seeing Zion Williamson. College basketball exploited the hell out of Zion Williamson, and uh, all this BS about eliminating one and done, which was a focal point of the Commission on College Basketball, is comical when you look at the value that the one-and-done players can bring to college basketball because of the power, the individual star power of athletes like Zion Williamson. And Mark Emmert's comments that, oh, these players have no value, independent of the school and the coach and the program and the NCAA, and they're nothing without us, is just offensive. It's just offensive on its face. That's still the rhetoric, though. They're still pumping it out, and they pumped it out in 2019 in connection with name, image, and likeness, and they're continuing to pump it out. It is a delegitimization narrative because they don't want anyone to know the true value of these athletes, and they don't want anyone to know that 85% of the most valuable athletes in the product that keeps the NCAA national office in business are African-American. And just to close out the value of these athletes... And the pipeline that starts in high school and then goes into the NBA. I want to talk about the NCAA athletes that wind up in the NBA. And 90% of the athletes in the NBA are African American. But I want to focus on this pipeline from the Power Five and the Big East into the NBA just to show how the... NCAA benefits from this elite talent that obviously has market value because it tells in going right into the next phase where they are a different type of professional. But let's see. I'll look at data from the 2018-2019 NBA season there were 494 players on 30 rosters, a very small number of players. The competition for those roster spots is unbelievable. And you have players all over the world competing for a a spot on the roster. Let's see. Of this small number of NBA players, 412 or 83% came from 117 NCAA Division I schools. The remaining players were either international, non-Division one, or a one-year post-high school sit-out. There were like 15 of those. But remember, with the one-and-done rule, you have to be 19 before you're eligible for the NBA draft. Of all of the 494 NBA players, 329 or 66% were from Power 5 Big East conference teams. And of the division one players, former division one players that were in the NBA, 80% of those players were from a Power 5 or a Big East conference team. Then to put an even finer point on the market value and dominance of these elite Power 5 Big East players from the Blue Blood schools, I went and looked at what individual schools these players were from. And nearly a third of every player in the NBA came from one of 10 schools. And I'll give these numbers in descending order by school. And again, this is for the 2018-2019 year. Kentucky led with 31 players. Duke 25, UCLA, 17, UNC, 13, Arizona, 12, Kansas, 12, Texas, 10, Indiana, 8, Michigan, 8, Villanova, 8. And those are those numbers just tell a story that is undeniable. And that is that black athletes dominate the highest levels of elite basketball from high school to college to the NBA. And in the college basketball setting, they are the value in the product. If the players just from these 10 schools that I just listed decided to sit out next year's March Madness Tournament, decided that they were going to just call in sick for next year's March Madness Tournament, the value of that tournament plummets overnight. And Mark Emmert knows that. The conference commissioners know that. The commission on college basketball knew that. The night commission knows that. CBS, Turner, ESPN all know that, but nobody, nobody is acknowledging the true value of these athletes to the business model. To the contrary, they're coming up with false narratives to minimize the value of these athletes. And the more these athletes are devalued and delegitimized by the institutions that benefit from their labor, the less likely it is that these athletes will receive basic American rights that most workers in this country take. For granted. This is the reality of the college basketball market and the racial component of the college basketball market at the highest levels, the levels that actually drive the value in the product. These are the athletes that CBS and Turner and ESPN. Need to be on the floor in order to get the value out of their contract and sell advertising and do all the things that they do to make billions and billions of dollars in this market. So now I just want to bring this back around to the enforcement and infractions process and these basketball related cases that the NCAA is now prosecuting and I say prosecuting because that's precisely what's happening here. And when you look at the individual athletes who have been implicated in the schools that are currently under investigation, all of them are African American. NC State, Dennis Smith Jr. is African American. Louisville, Brian Bowen is African American. Kansas, Silvio De Souza is African American. LSU Javante Smart, and actually the LSU coach, Will Wade, was accused, or there were allegations that he had made numerous offers to players. Not, I don't think all those players have been identified. So it's possible that there's a white player in that group. And then you have, let's see, DeAndre Ayton, Arizona. He is African-American. And then this is not technically in the the Southern District of New York class of cases. But the James Wiseman case, the Memphis case, is also in that independent accountability resolution process. And Wiseman is African-American. And then There are probably 25 other names that have come up from credible sources and discussions about these basketball-related scandals and players who may have been paid. Every single one of those players is African-American, and they spread across over 30 Power 5 schools. So these athletes are the lifeblood of big-time college basketball, and they are the lifeblood of the NCAA bureaucracy, its national office, and its lavishly paid executive staff. We don't know how much it will ultimately cost and actual hard costs to the system to prosecute these cases, but it's going to be in the tens of millions of dollars. And I think I mentioned this in a prior episode, but I want to emphasize it again. And that is that this entirely new bureaucracy, this independent accountability resolution process bureaucracy, is funded by the NCAA. These are paid professionals. These aren't volunteers. This new process is filled with paid professionals. And there are some high-powered firms and high-powered attorneys on the resolution panel. The people who are performing services in that system are going to get checks cut With the NCAA stamped at the top. Which means that these athletes, the very athletes that they are going after, are the ones who are paying their salaries. Everybody in this system, in this infractions and enforcement system, is drinking from the March Madness trough. From the NCAA National Office trough. And that trough is filled and refilled every year to the tune of a billion dollars from the labor of the very black athletes that they are coming after in this infractions and enforcement process. We'll probably never know the true cost to the system for the prosecution of these cases because the NCAA is a private entity and they're not subject to public records requests and they provide as little information as possible. And absent a subpoena from a third party, they're never going to tell us how much these cases cost. But it's going to run into the millions of dollars per school. And remember, NC State submitted the victim impact statement in the criminal case, that Gatto case in the Southern District of New York. And it was asking for, I think, $250,000, $300,000 in reimbursement for legal fees from Gatto. Not from Adidas, but from Gatto. And Kansas and Louisville had some big numbers there too. And on the backside of this when those numbers turn into millions and we compare the amount spent in the prosecution of these cases to the amount of money at issue, the lack of proportionality is going to be difficult to wrap our heads around. That's something that the NCAA, again, just has zero sensitivity to because they're just going to get another billion dollars next year. And that gravy train set to run through 2032. And I can promise you that some time in the not-too-distant future, they're going to extend that contract, and it's just going to go on and on and on. In terms of the moral principles, I just want to go back to this Taylor Branch article, the 2011 article in The Atlantic, and it was titled The Shame of College Sports. Branch is talking about the quote-unquote corruption in college sports and these athletes that have been accused of receiving money off the books and tarnishing the sacred principle of amateurism and the student-athlete and the collegiate model. Branch says this, the tragedy at the heart of college sports is not that some college athletes are getting paid, but that more of them are not. And I think that is a good endpoint for this discussion about the NCAA infractions and enforcement case. And we're going to follow this. We're going to be waiting for a decision. And then we have these other cases that are going forward as well. But in the next episode, I'm going to pivot back to what's happening right now. With this constitutional committee, what I think is happening and with how the NCAA is positioning itself from not just from a public relations standpoint, but from a legal standpoint, because they're going back to Congress. Just yesterday, so today is October 1st of 2021, yesterday in the House Commerce Committee or subcommittee of House Commerce, there was a hearing on name, image, and likeness. We had the usual suspects. It was really a replay of the June 9th hearing in the Senate Commerce Committee when the NCAA was making its last-ditch attempt for preemption to try to nullify all these state nil laws and executive orders and university policies and It was a really interesting hearing. It didn't get a lot of coverage because I don't think it was consequential, and I think it was really called because Anthony Gonzalez, who really was the kind of the pitch man for the NCAA from the very beginning of its quest for the Iron Throne in 2020, he's been pressing for a hearing. He just wants a hearing. Because this is the first hearing that's been conducted in the House. There were six hearings in the Senate in 2020 and 2021. But I want to talk about that because the NCAA is right back where they started in February of 2020. And Mark Emmert was sitting there at the witness table and there was some interesting stuff there. So I'm going to talk about that. And that ties in, the themes that came out of that hearing tie into what's happening with this constitutional committee. And so things are really starting to come into shape in my mind as to what the NCAA is thinking, what their approach is going to be in their next move. And this discussion about race in the context of these basketball prosecutions that the NCAA is pursuing. It will be a nice segue into the next episodes. The NCAA's race-based delegitimization tactics were on full display. In fact, there was a double down on those tactics, and this was really an opportunity to peek into the dark soul of the NCAA and its minions when it comes to pitting the interests of black revenue producing athletes against the interests of comparatively well-off white stakeholder beneficiaries. So with that, I'll close this out and I just want to thank you for joining me. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you and I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.